All right, well, this morning we're going to be in Deuteronomy 22, uh, but we're going to begin in Leviticus 18. So our text will be Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 30, but we will begin in Leviticus 18 if you want to turn there. Now, we joked a little bit yesterday in our welcome class that the very next section, chapter 23, starts about how uh, people are excluded from the congregation, and it begins with men whose testicles are crushed, and how hilarious that would be and ironic if we use that as our Father's Day text. <laughs> but I decided to be a little more couth than that and uh, stick with the fact that we go through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter. What's interesting is that when we go through the Bible like this, we don't get to skip over the hard topics or the ones that might make us uncomfortable or the ones that might get you to throw rotten fruit at me. Either way, we go through the Word and we understand what it is. And so today is interesting because while still awkward, uh, like that other possible text, um, what we see today is a great deal about paternity and inheritance um, that we as fathers pass on down to our children primarily in the form of our faithfulness to Christ. And so even though we're not directly talking about fathers here today, and it's not a Father's Day message, uh, there is something to be said about the inheritance we give our children. Um, for any of you that are visiting, I want to acknowledge for you that this may be an awkward section of text because it is dealing with the uncomfortable topic of sexual ethics. And so if you were looking for a Father's Day topical sermon, I'm sorry you showed up at the wrong place. Um, but if you want to learn more about what the Bible says, you definitely showed up at the right place. And so we're going through one of the most in-depth statements on sexual ethics as God views it today. So thanks for walking through this with us, even if you're a visitor. I think that we're all going to be blessed today because of it. Now, the reality of our world is that we have become so confused when it comes to the topic of sexual ethics. The world continues to operate in a rigidity which it's always had, which says there should be no constraints on our sexuality. And the sad part is that the church has responded over the centuries by turning sexuality into an issue of moralism and detached it from its biblical foundations. And so many people, especially those in my age group on down, other than a moralistic rule, don't realize why how they use their sexuality matters. And in doing so, the church has become condemning, unfortunately, and unhelpful to the world to a large degree. As we discussed last week, a biblical view of sexual sin is a humble one. It's one where we see that every human operates as a sinful abomination until we choose to submit to Christ. That includes me, that includes you. Until we submit to him and his view on sexuality. But the church has often not done this, and so we seem to omit any condemnation of heterosexual sin in the church, or mention it just in passing, while at the same time, in large part, dogpiling criticism and condemnation on those outside of heterosexuality, and that is wrong. And many people have been harmed because of that. Now, this idea of uh, focusing on one side of sin and not the other was wonderfully stated in a recent social media post by Jackie Hill Perry. How many of you know who she is? So Jackie Hill Perry is a wonderful Christian recording artist, a rapper, uh, and a wonderful speaker. She does spoken word, and she also speaks for Gospel Coalition and many others. And she's known partially for the fact that she identified as gay, and then, through conviction, decided to move from that lifestyle and step into heterosexual marriage with a friend who was also a recording artist who was very sexually um, active prior to marrying her. And she still admits that she struggles with same-sex attraction. So she's fighting the sin actively and repenting while leading a very holy life and serving Christ. Because that can happen, guys. 
The church oftentimes makes it sound like that can't happen, but that absolutely can. And this is what she said in her social media post. She said, folks are always asking Preston, that's her husband, what it's like to be married to someone that was gay. For some odd reason, nobody ever asks me what it's like to be with someone who used to be the three words that Santa says. Ho, ho, ho. I'll let y'all figure that one out. In other words, someone with a heterosexually promiscuous past, right? Isn't that interesting? What's it like for you to be married to someone who's gay? Nobody ever asks her, what's it like for you to be married to someone who is sexually promiscuous, heterosexually? I think that shows kind of the state of the church, honestly, in the fact that we dogpile on one side of sin and kind of slowly but surely move past the other as if it's no big deal. And so we've relegated some sexual acts and attraction to the category of okay, while others are called an abomination. But rather than coming up with our own categories or basing our opinions on emotional appeals or stating political agendas, I think that the Holy Spirit would call us back to God's word to ask the question, what is his view on sexuality? Not what is our own or what makes sense to us. So what is the sexual ethic that he desires for his people? And so today we're going to look at it in a document that is thousands of years old, and yet I think it still has a lot of bearing. Today we're going to talk about the sexual ethic of God's people. You can write that down, the sexual ethic of God's people. So this morning I want to ask you a very hard thing. Regardless of where you stand on the topic of sexuality, regardless of what your attraction is, regardless of whether or not you view yourself as cisgender or anything else, I want you to pull back and shelve your view of sexuality and gender for the morning. I know that's hard to ask of people, but in order to unpack the text we have before us, I think we all need to do that. And I think if we're able to do that, we're all going to walk out of here with some clarity. So the first thing we have to do is we have to get a background on how to read about sexuality in the Bible. So let's start there. And I'm going to take you to a lot of different places before we end up in Deuteronomy 22. This is tough stuff, but what's amazing about this is, guys, this is so far removed from our culture and our mindset that it's going to take a while for me to paint the background to get us there. So thank you for walking with me through this. The first point I want you to write down is we're going to look at a biblical view of land, inheritance, offspring, and covenant. You're thinking, what does this have to do with sex? It has everything to do with sex, and I'll show you what I mean by that. We're going to look at a biblical view of land, inheritance, offspring, and covenant. When we discuss sexuality from the Old Testament, most of us turn to the rules that are outlined in Leviticus 18, whether we like it or not. And we turn there to take a look at what God says about sexuality. And let's take a look there at 18.1 in Leviticus. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Remember, capital L-O-R-D. Behind it is always the Hebrew name of God, uh, Yahweh. Um, and so he says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Okay. And so what we have here is this simple statement. Don't be like the other people around you who have no sexual restraint. And then we read these laws and think, okay, here's the do's and don'ts of sex. We can even get very specific starting, let's look, for example, at verse 19. It says, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. 
You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, that's a foreign god, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it, it is perversion. So we have these very specific rules, right? But before we use this to create this baseline sexual ethic about sex alone, and we silo off sex as if it's its own topic, we need to keep reading. Take a look at verse 24 there. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all of these, the the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am Yahweh your God. For us as Americans, we view this idea of land as something totally different. Notice who the four characters are here. We have the Israelite people, the pagan Canaanite people, God, but we often forget the fourth character, the land. This idea is so far from our culture and so far from our perspective that we zoom past this super fast and we miss the entire point. There is a fourth character and it is the land. For us, as Americans, we view land ownership as an item of material wealth. But we need to step away from that view and get back to the ancient Near East view in order to understand what's being said. And for this, we need to go back to the idea of kingdom. You guys remember that idea? We've hit on it a lot in Deuteronomy. A kingdom. A kingdom is always a king ruling a people in a realm. Okay? Now, you can't forget that last part. A king ruling a people in a realm. Remember that there are kingdoms at war in the Bible, and you always have to read the Bible with that perspective. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of rebellion fighting against each other. And the kingdom of God made up of, is made up of the one true creator God and all those allegiant to his rule. Then we have the kingdom of darkness, which was initiated by those angelic beings who rebelled against God and against his rule, and all those who are allegiant to that kingdom are part of it as well. And this rebellion was then cast down to earth long before mankind, and the earth became this primary theater of warfare in this cosmic battle. Now, it's funny to me how little we as Christians think about that as we read the Bible. This is the background, the backdrop of everything in the Bible. And so if we had a map of the earth prior to the cross, we would see all the land turning black as the territory of the enemy of God. It's kind of like the maps we use to talk about uh, ISIS taking over land, right? All the red and brown up there. If you looked at the cosmic warfare, you would see that the earth was covered in the territory of the enemy or the realm of the kingdom of darkness. And so this idea is very, very important to grasp. So we're given subtle hints throughout Scripture that these rebellious angelic beings or demons were given authority on the earth, but specifically, interestingly enough, you know what they were given authority over? Geographic locations. They were given realms. Here's one statement from Deuteronomy 32. We'll be there shortly, uh, probably within the next couple months. Moses, you laugh. <laughs> 
Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, 7, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High, that's the Creator God, gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. And that phrase is speaking of angelic divine beings. But the Lord's portion is, his inheritance is, his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. And so again, we move past this very quickly if we don't recognize what he's saying, that these angelic beings were given realm across the nations. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 10, for example. This helps explain a very odd passage in the book of Daniel. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Daniel 10, starting in verse 12. You have these odd statements about angelic beings being royalty given dominion. For example, Daniel is praying to God. And he has this angel show up. And take a look there starting in verse 12. Then he, this angelic being, said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words, okay? His prayer brought this angelic being who is allegiant to the most holy God, okay? And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. So this dude, like, what? Prince of Persia? Isn't that a video game? No, it's not. This is a demonic being, okay? The prince of Persia. He withstood him 21 days. So there's warfare. But Michael, one of the chief princes... Okay, you guys all know your Bible. Who is Michael? Michael is a angel. He's one of the archangels of, archangels of God. One of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me and said, O oh man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So in other words, the archangel of God, Michael, is just as strong as multiple demons. But there's still a warfare going on. It's amazing to me how we as Christians in our postmodern culture like to take things that make us happy and encouraged, but we throw away the majority of the Bible, which is about spiritual warfare. It's about demonic warfare within the divine realm. And if we don't get that, we miss out on these kind of passages. So in short, there's warfare going on, and warfare is for people, but it is represented in geographic language, land language. People in the ancient Near East and even in the Middle East today, they get this. If you talk to Palestinians and Israelis today, their worldview is still wrapped around land far more so than ours. When land is inhabited by those allegiant to Yahweh, the land is blessed. When it is inhabited by those rebellious against Yahweh, it is cursed. And the sinful activity will cause the land to, quote unquote, vomit out a people, just as we saw in Leviticus. 
So this gives us clarity for what we see in the midst of God's creation. And this gives us clarity in places like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3. In Genesis 1, you see the land being prepared for God's people, Adam and Eve. Now to the Hebrew, this is always in reference to telling them that God is one who prepares the land, who provides provision. Why was this so important for Moses to write, to tell his people? Because they needed confidence as they were about to go into the promised land to destroy the Canaanite people that were there. And so you see this kind of language of preparing the land for God's ambassadors to come and rule and reign and conquer in his name. This is why Genesis 1.28, we touch on this a lot, but it's so important to understand. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. What's that talking about? Making babies, procreation, okay? And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That idea of dominion is ruling in a realm, right? So these were supposed to be rulers in, on God's behalf. Genesis 2.15, he told Adam to tend or to work and keep the garden. That word keep in the Hebrew is a warfare word, shamar. It means to protect, to fight, to hold, okay? Genesis 3.15, what we have here is we have that warfare between the demonic beings and the offspring of God. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And notice who the battle is going to be between. Between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The created order has been usurped by the kingdom of darkness. And since that time, there's been warfare between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the prince of darkness. This is the backdrop for reading Deuteronomy 22, whether we know it or not. Now you might be saying, Hans, I thought we were talking about sexual ethics today. What on earth does spiritual warfare and land have to do with sexuality? Well, have you guys noticed the language of just even the last few verses? Be fruitful and multiply. Okay, let's all go back to our health class. How do you be fruitful and multiply? Sex. Fill the earth and subdue it. How do you build an army? You have lots of kids. Your offspring. How do you have offspring, guys? Go ahead, say it out loud. It's okay. You're like, can I say sex in a church? Yes, you can. Sex, okay? Your offspring will be at war with her offspring. Now, I recognize this is a very awkward statement in 2019, but here's what the Bible says. Sexuality is linked to procreation, child-rearing, and spiritual warfare. That's what the Bible says about sex. Now, in 2019, we go, Hans, you're, you're totally out of it. No, guys, that's what the Bible says. That sexuality is an issue that has to deal with a lot more than just using our nerve endings. And notice how all these pieces are linked in the great Shema. If we look to Deuteronomy chapter 6, everybody go there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen with me to the great Shema starting in Deuteronomy 6.1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may, what? 
multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Why was it such a big deal that God promised Abraham offspring? Because if there weren't offspring, he wouldn't be able to fulfill the call to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, okay? Look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The great command is quoted by Christ has to do with teaching up our offspring to be those offspring that fight against the offspring of the kingdom of darkness. It has to do with spiritual warfare. And then when we look at the uh, fifth command of the, of the Ten Commandments, notice what it says. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you. What's that linked to? That's linked to the great Shema, listening to their teaching, teaching how to follow Yahweh. For what purpose? That your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Those allegiant to Yahweh were to train their children to likewise be allegiant, fulfilling the ongoing warfare of the offspring of Yahweh versus the offspring of the kingdom of darkness. And so, here we are in Deuteronomy, poised on the edge of the land that God has promised to the people and having prepared it for their conquering forces. And when they get into the land and disperse the people, the very next step will be to allot land inheritance to the people based on tribes and families. You know all those lists of genealogy that bore us out of our minds? That was super important to the Jews. Why? So-and-so begat so-and-so? This was important because once they got into the land, the distribution of the land would be based on inheritance, who your father was, your grandfather was, your great-grandfather was. And see, guys, this is important because if this is my land, I go to war for it. I protect it. If I don't know where my land is, I don't know what I'm fighting for in the mindset of people in the Old Testament. And so the following through of that fruitfulness that was supposed to lead to the subduing of the land, the conquering of the land, the fighting back the forces of the kingdom of darkness had to do with the inheritance and the paternity that was passed down to children. Look, for example, at Joshua 15 for, for me, uh, with me for a second. This is what it says. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah. How do you know if you're from Judah? Well, your dad and your dad's dad and your dad's 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 dad was from Judah. That's how you know. According to their clans, reach southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin, and it spells out the property boundaries of the land they were supposed to be fighting for. The land is allotted by offspring and family name. And how did one receive that inheritance? It was based on whose child they were, the topic of procreation and of offspring. Which comes from what, guys? How do you have procreation and offspring? Sex. Okay? Now, what's crazy is in 2019, even especially in the evangelical church, you hang out with Catholics, and Catholics are like, no, we get this. The whole point of sex is procreation, right? And I don't mean that as a joke. Literally, you hear a wedding mass, and they say to the couple, will you raise your children in the Catholic church? It's intricately linked. But we as evangelicals, we have made use of what? Birth control. So, which is not bad, there's nothing wrong with birth control, but what it says is, well, let's just separate sex from procreation, and when I'm ready, I will procreate. 
we've very much replaced God on his throne with our desire of when we get to have kids. It's very much an evangelical thing. And so we've split the two apart. So this idea of sex and offspring being together, it's not so much easy for us. Well, when they acted outside this view, this idea of offspring being connected to the idea of fulfilling the covenant relationship and warring on behalf of Yahweh, when they disconnected these two, God was not pleased, to say the least. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Go to the end of the Old Testament. If you don't know where Malachi is, you can go to Matthew and just turn left a little bit. Go to Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. You guys still with me? Look at Malachi 2.10. In this portion of Malachi, the people of Israel are disputing with God that he is faithless and not delivering on his covenant promise. But God's response is here in Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. In other words, they, they went against his command to not marry and procreate with someone who worshiped a different God. Why is that a bad thing? Well, because guys, as many of us know, when you have one spouse who doesn't follow Jesus, it's super hard for the other spouse to train up your children in the way of Yahweh. It's very practical math. It still happens today. And yet, I constantly see Christians who say they're serious about following Jesus and raising up their children in the church, marrying apathetic Christians or non-believers. It blows my mind. I seriously think to myself, what will happen in 10 years when this child isn't going to church with you because they want to hang out with the other spouse? And yet we still continue to make that mistake, even though it's right here in the word. It says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Well, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. What the men were doing of Israel is they were chucking their wife to go get a newer model of a Moabite. Oh, this, there's this little hottie over here. I'm going to get rid of my wife who I've been married to for 30 years to go shack up with her over here to exercise my sexual rights. But God says you're faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them, the man and woman, one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Why? What was the one God seeking? What's it say there, guys? What's it say? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. In other words, he's saying, you're calling down my wrath upon you if you're faithless to the wife of your youth. God's response here is, guys, what was the whole point of covenant faithfulness in marriage? It was to produce godly offspring that would follow me. But rather than staying true to that covenant, you were divorcing your spouse and committing sexual immorality with worshipers of foreign gods. Why was God upset with Israel? They had got, forgotten their entire mission. 
And it wasn't only fornication that was breaking God's law here. It was the underlying fact of covenant unfaithfulness and a refusal to show God's heart to the surrounding people. Because now, if the foreign woman became pregnant, the likelihood of that child being raised to follow Yahweh decreased. And most likely, that child could enter into the kingdom of rebellion. So issues of paternity were huge to Israel. These were fighting words. They were literally life and death in the spiritual battle on behalf of Yahweh. To read Scripture correctly, we have to employ this understanding and this correct view of land, inheritance, and offspring. Who the father was and who the offspring was and who they were raised to worship was directly attached to the covenant faithfulness of the people of God. Now, this is massively important for us to understand Deuteronomy 22. Everybody turn back there with me and we're going to see what it's talking about. And this is what the entire section of today is about. You can write this next point down. Confusion of paternity, or who the father was of a child, threatened inheritance, and therefore Israel's covenant faithfulness. Realize, guys, they didn't have DNA tests back then. You couldn't check who the father was right? Until they got a little bit older and they uh, looked a lot like the father. And so confusion of paternity threatened inheritance and therefore Israel's covenant faithfulness. Now this brings us to our text for today in which laws were given to deal with six issues, not of sex, but of paternity that could jeopardize the inheritance of the land going to Israel and or jeopardize the land being given to the correct tribe. You see why it's important to understand this background as we head into this? It's not necessarily about sex is good or sex is bad. It's about covenant faithfulness. Let's take a look there at the first one right here in uh, verse 13. Deuteronomy 22, verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her, meaning he consummated the marriage through sex, and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman... And when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels, which was about 10 years worth of salary. Okay, it's a lot of money. A hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge evil from your midst. Now, do you guys see why I was a little nervous about teaching this today? Right? Nervous chuckle. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a, a, a crazy text. It's totally divorced from 2019. We don't know how to read this. We read this and we think, this is horrific. Are you kidding me? But see, in this case, a man and a woman are betrothed, given to one another. They consummate the marriage. And then shortly thereafter, the husband says, hey, she was not a virgin when I tried to conceive with her. There is a likelihood that she may have been impregnated by someone else. Why is that an issue? 
because of inheritance, because of land, because of covenant faithfulness. Now, this was a major problem because if true, this woman and her fornication outside of the marriage covenant jeopardized the inheritance of the land to the appropriate person or tribe and possibly even jeopardized it staying in the people of Israel. Do any of you watch Braveheart? Any of you saw that movie a long time ago? That's kind of a few of you. Okay, there's a scene in that movie where they try to get rid of all the Scots. And the the Brits, uh, there's this scene where the king says, if we can't fight them out, we will breed them out. Meaning, we will take over their land by paternal law. And so, the, the dukes, the surrounding dukes that are British, they go and they start to impregnate the women who are just married. They would go into the wedding feast, they'd take the, the married woman out before her husband could impregnate her, and they would try to impregnate her. It was the law of prima nocta, and it was used all throughout the ancient world. Because if you impregnated that woman before someone in her clan, then you would get their land. Again, totally divorced from 2019, we have no idea what this is talking about. But the reality is, is that's what was going on here. And so if she was impregnated by someone not in that clan, they would have lost that land. And at the same time, this law to try and keep it within the people of Israel for covenant faithfulness is also amazingly just and protective of the woman. This clause that is written about what happens if she is wrongly accused, and notice it begins with that, the parents could bring proof to the elders of the city of either the blood on the wedding night bedsheet, proving she was a virgin, or possibly a cloth used for hygiene during the woman's last period to prove that she had not been impregnated by another man. Now guys, we might go, gross, why is this even talking about this? Well, the reality is this is a huge deal. Because in a society in which women were very much seen as property with no voice in the surrounding cultures, the God of Israel gives a sense of justice to protect false accusation against an innocent woman. Even today in the Middle East, you will hear stories of rural villages where a woman is raped. It's not even her fault. And yet she's taken in stone because she brings shame upon her family. This kind of law was massively different in this day and age. It was a God of justice to care for the oppressed. He gave protection to women when they usually had none. And so even though we read it with 2019 eyes, the second we move back into that culture, we realize God is massively careful and compassionate towards the woman who's been unjustly accused. Well, secondly, we have a situation where it's a married woman who was unfaithful. Look at verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, right? In other words, they're married and yet she has sex with someone outside the marriage. Both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Justice is sought here not because of the sexual contact itself, but because in doing this, the order of a stable family teaching the great Shema and giving the child an inheritance was all jeopardized. The covenant relationship was jeopardized, not to mention adultery, being the antithesis of God's covenant faithfulness. It ruins the witness of God's people. Well, then next we have the section on a betrothed virgin consenting to adultery. Look at 22, verse 23. If there is a betrothed virgin, meaning she's already been promised, it's basically under contract, um, they, they haven't done the wedding night yet, but they are. Uh, it's kind of like Mary and Joseph, they were betrothed, okay? And a man meets her in the city and lies with her. Then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. 
so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, this item and the one next to it have to do with the topic of consent, a big issue in our culture today. In this case, a betrothed woman, in essence already covenanted to continue the lineage of another man, another Hebrew man, to whom she was betrothed, she commits adultery. Again, possibly ruining the idea of the land being given to the appropriate clan. Now, what's interesting here is what's spelled out in ancient Hebrew language is the man, because he did this awful thing, is going to be put to death. And the woman is, is because she consented. It's a topic of consent here. Now, let me pause for a moment to tackle something. A misreading of this verse has often, in the history of our society, led to society blaming victims of sexual assault for, quote-unquote, not fighting back. That's a misreading of this verse. I've worked with multiple people, men and women, but women especially, who come into counseling with a severe sense of guilt and shame that they did not, quote-unquote, fight back. They didn't, quote-unquote, fight back against their aggressor or their abuser, and so many, unfortunately, surmise that they must have done something to invite it. Can I please pause for a moment to speak to any of you in the audience who might have this lie in your mind and heart? The human body is equipped with an amazingly complex trauma reaction system. It activates what many have heard before as fight, flight, or freeze. You guys heard of that before? Your reaction to trauma is organically encoded in your system. You cannot help what you do when you are threatened. Maybe you fight, maybe you flee, or maybe you freeze. For many sexual assault victims who have been harmed, the reaction is to disassociate mentally and emotionally from the act while at the same time existing physically within the act of molestation. And then later, the victim may reassociate with reality and realize I never wanted that, nor did I ask for it. We live in a culture that is trying to fight back against this, and I want us to understand this. The issue here is not whether or not the woman fought back or yelled. That's how we read this on the surface. The issue is consent, written in ancient Hebrew and the way they would have written it, saying if a betrothed virgin consents to adultery, she's committed sin. This is not an issue of whether or not she fought back. And so if you are one who is engaged in consenting sexual immorality and you feel guilty, the Bible is very clear about what to do. If you've engaged in it and you've consented in it, this is what the Bible says. That if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're a person with a sexual past that does not glorify God, this is your verse. You can confess it to him, you can repent from it, and he is quick to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God desires to forgive you and cleanse you and make you new. And so today you can confess it. As you go to the table of communion, you can confess it to him. Turn from what you knew about sexuality and embrace God's view and he will forgive you. But if you are one who has been raped or molested or harmed sexually, God wants to free you today from the shame that you carry and yet let you know that he is on the side of the oppressed and the harmed. 
And he wants to cleanse you from the shame that you feel. And so I would ask you, let him do that today. Let him speak to you softly that it was not your fault and that his anger is not at you, it is at your abuser. Jesus came to defeat that kind of brokenness and sin. And he desires to make you whole again, regardless of the shame you feel. That's the God that we serve. Amen? So let's not misread this text. Let's read it as it was originally intended. The next one here in verse 25 has to do with the case of a, the rape of a betrothed victim. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed virgin, the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was none, no one to rescue her. Again, don't get stuck on the crying for help. Realize this is an issue of consent. The one before it was consenting, the one after it here is not consenting. Um, and so this, this uh, section and the section after it, they deal with circumstances where no consent is given. In the first case, it is a blatant rape of a betrothed woman. And notice that it compares it to murder. And in the case of paternal inheritance, it is murdering. It's murdering the lineage of the father, potentially. And because in this case, if raped and impregnated, the inheritance of the father would go to the firstborn that is not actually his own, and the land would be given over to them. And again, notice the pointed protection of the oppressed. In the ancient Near East, even still today, as I said, women who are raped sometimes can be held and potentially even killed for dishonoring their family. But here, the God of the Bible, the good and compassionate and merciful God, in this document thousands of year old, years old, says that he is compassionate and merciful towards the victim, and he wants them protected. Next, we have the civil case of rape when the victim is not betrothed. Take a look at verse 28. This is a woman who's just a young woman. She's not betrothed in marriage nor married. She's under the protection of her father, and this is what ends up happening. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Now, guys, this is a tough one, and I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is tough. We read this and we think a man forcibly rapes a virgin that is not betrothed, and in our 2019 trauma-informed eyes, we say, what kind of horrible God would make the rape victim stay with the rapist? That's ridiculous. And I want to admit that to you. But we have to remember in that day and age, because of the paternity and inheritance view, a woman who lost her virginity would often be cast out of society or be forced into prostitution to survive. This measure, in the brokenness of that society and time in history, was a protective measure that the woman would at least survive and be provided for. It would require the man to treat her as a wife rather than an object. If they were to kill the man, which he deserved, then, he would, then this would also be likewise condemning her to death because she would have no one in that society to protect, for, protect her and care for her and provide for her. So even though it is an incredibly hard verse, we still see that the care and the provision of the person who's been harmed is still there. Well, lastly, we see in verse 30, the case of incest. It says, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Now, this is simply an issue because the son is messing around with the birth order of his siblings and in their inheritance. A very messy business indeed. 
So we read this and we think, okay, not excited to read this section, but at least we understand it now. And you might be saying, okay, I see that the paternity is an issue, but why wouldn't God just install a whole new system? Some of this still sounds incredibly barbaric, doesn't it? But remember, we must look through the eyes of the culture of the day. And in that culture, these were revolutionary and just measures beyond anything that was around them. And the principles we can gain from them still assist us as a society in legal punishment for false accusation, for rape, for sexual immorality. These were far advanced laws for their time. So now we have to ask, what do we do with it? How do we apply this? Hans, paternity isn't an issue anymore. So does that mean we can now just all go do whatever we want sexually, right? Paternity is not an issue. This doesn't apply to us. How do we use our sexuality? Well, the reality, guys, is that, this is my last point, as Christians, we need to view sexuality through the lens of covenant faithfulness. That hasn't changed. While this isn't an issue of land so much anymore, it's still an issue of warfare, and I'll show you why. As Christians, we need to view sexuality through the lens of covenant faithfulness. And so this morning, I want to finish by giving you a few points for Christian sexual ethics. And this, is, uh, this isn't actually in the text, but this is what we as Christians need to look at in viewing this kind of understanding. So we're going to use this text as a jump-off point to talk about these somewhat quickly here. First, I want you to write uh, this first one down. God created humans as sexual creatures and saw that it was good. If we want to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis 1, as Christians, we need to inform our view of sexuality with this. God created humans as sexual creatures and saw that it was good. Guys, God was not embarrassed when he looked down and saw Adam and Eve in their maleness and femaleness doing what he asked them to do, procreating. It's not like God was sitting up there and he's like, what are you doing? Ah, right? He didn't freak out when he saw them creating offspring. He's the one that created it. Sometimes I think what the way that we teach our kids is the whole, ah, what are you doing mentality. You guys have heard it said before that the church teaches sex is gross, save it for the one you love, right? And often that's what I find. Children that are brought up in youth groups, if I just hold out, then we get married and boom, everything will be amazing. And then they come in my office two weeks later and say, um, so it's not amazing and it's kind of weird and awkward I didn't really get taught about this in youth group. All I got told was sex is gross, save it for the one you love. We harm our children in a sense when we don't talk about sex as a good thing. Adam took joy in his wife's beauty. If you read his statement, um, this is uh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? He was literally saying hubba hubba, right? When he saw her coming towards him. We need to steward our sexuality with our eyes toward using it to proclaim God's covenant faithfulness, not ignore it or be ashamed of it. We need to teach our children proper use, not disuse. As Christian parents especially, we need to help our children, especially those that are exploring their bodies as they move toward and through adolescence, not walk around ashamed by their sexual nature. Instead, we need to help them learn to treasure it, to understand it, and to utilize it for the glory of God and for their joy. And parents not talking about it won't help in this. In fact, you should be having discussions with your children from a very early age, starting with anatomy and then helping them on through. If you want more resources on this, I can definitely help you with this in how to talk to your kids about sexuality. Likewise, uh, single folks, folks who are unmarried, if you are yearning for marriage and it just has not happened yet, do not be ashamed that you have sexual yearnings. Rather, learn to practice sexual self-control. 
To learn it prior to marriage will help you within marriage because you still have to use it in marriage. Can I get an amen from all the married people? Right? It's not like every time you snap your fingers, your spouse is there to have sex with you, right? You have to learn sexual self-control and you need to do that outside marriage. And so if either of these is a topic for you and you'd like to discuss it further, please come chat with me and I can talk to you and get you some great resources. If you're a single person and you're thinking, man, I am lusting like crazy and I've got all these sexual yearnings, Hans, uh, how do I deal with this? I'd love to chat with you about that. Um, I do a lot of counseling in that area. Well, the second thing we need to know is that society has confused gender with masculinity and femininity. Society has confused gender with masculinity and femininity. When you look at Scripture, you have men like David and women like Deborah. What do I mean by that? Uh, She could fight with the boys and do some damage, right? Uh, She was not the one who was like, I'm going to go do my hair. She's like, give me a spear and I'm going to cut somebody up, right? She's the one you wanted on your hunting squad. And you have guys like David who, even though he was strong and masculine in a lot of ways, he played a harp, for goodness sakes. Today, we'd be like, what is wrong with that? Our cultural view would be men who play harps, right? He cried all the time in the Psalms. If you're a guy who's uncomfortable with crying, you literally are fighting against a man who was made in God's image. He cried all the time. He would have been labeled as bipolar in our culture. He might have been seen as effeminate, and yet he was also one of the greatest warriors ever for Israel. See, God's view of maleness and femaleness is not linked to how much beer you can drink or how big your truck is or how much meat you eat or if you scrapbook or if you do your hair or makeup. It has nothing to do with any of these things. It has to do with your maleness or femaleness, your ability to procreate, whether or not you utilize it. And for any of us as humans that feel uncomfortable in our bodies, to whatever extent, we need to push away the lies that have been told to us that we have believed that we would feel better about ourselves if we just got this or that surgery done. I find it the height of hypocrisy that the church is okay with some forms of uh, plastic surgery, but if you do plastic surgery to change your genitalia, now the line has been drawn. Why don't we just all be content with all of our bodies all the time, as opposed to creating a hypocrisy? Each of us, brothers and sisters, must learn contentment and stewardship of the bodies that we have been given, all to the glory of God. You're tall? Great. You're short? Great. You're skinny? Great. Not so skinny? Great. Learn contentment. Third, we should not use the minority to inform or define God's created order. We need to look at the created order and realize that it is that way for the majority for a reason. The majority of people in this life will get married and have children. And that doesn't mean people who don't do that are bad. My wife and I have biological brokenness that made it very hard for us to have children. It is not an insult to us that God's created order is for a man and woman to marry and have kids, even though it was very hard for us. To take our story and define sexuality based on the brokenness of our bodies that is a result of original sin present in the world would be to pervert God's original design. Our inability to have children for much of our marriage does not lessen the fact that God's broader design is for men and women to meet, get married, have children and to train those children in allegiance to Yahweh and send them out to proclaim the gospel. Our allegiance to Yahweh, though much of that, uh, through much of that pain of at least 13 miscarriages and multiple failed adoptions, was to continue using our marriage to raise disciples even though it was painful beyond belief. Likewise, if you are single and are not married, don't let your lack of children define your worth. 
While the majority of mankind will get married at some point in their life and procreate, this is not the only way to advance the kingdom. You are not less of a human because you aren't married and don't have sex. In fact, our Savior did not advance the kingdom in this way at all, nor did the Apostle Paul. They both, being fully male, utilized their lives to proclaim the gospel and advance the kingdom without sexuality. Child-rearing is not the only nor the best way to advance the kingdom, but it is the way that the majority of people will, will participate. If you're a couple who can't have children, it does not mean you've done something wrong. It means that there's brokenness in this world. And there are many ways to advance the gospel and build disciples, adoption, foster care, caring for the kids of this church. Well, lastly, you can write down, the real issue of our sexuality is this, allegiance to God, allegiance to Yahweh. Just as with the Old Testament use of sexuality and procreation, our use of our maleness and femaleness is directly tied to our covenant allegiance to God that we say that we serve. For 2,000 years, Christians have been known in the world as those who exhibit sexual restraint outside of the marriage bed and sexual freedom inside the marriage bed. Joy and pleasure, yes, but using marriage as an environment to raise disciples of Jesus Christ. I always think it's funny that the Puritans get such a bad rap. Oh, that's puritanical, meaning non-sexual. If you read the Puritans, the Puritans enjoyed sex within their marriage, very much so. The reality is, is within the marriage bed, God wants us to see that it's good and to enjoy it, but to ex exhibit restraint outside of the marriage bed. And not only that, but practically and psychologically, when we bring our sexuality into submission to the context of a mother and father, a husband and wife, Secular research has shown over and over and over again that this leads to good situations. Situations that give massive psychological benefits. It gives secure attachment and removes the anxiety of abandonment. It gives our children a massive boost in the likelihood of successful future relationships because they see covenant loyalty, love, and intimacy modeled for them. And research has also proven that the best way to help our children take on our worldview, not the perfect way, but the best way, is by strong attachment and loving relationship with them. Using our sexuality properly does not promise that our children will be disciples of Christ, but it is the best possible chance of making disciples that desire to follow Christ. Children who come up in homes where their parents' relationship and marriage is secure and strong and shows love and intimacy, they do well Across the board, it is a risk factor for future possible problems in the life of a child when that is not the case. And so the reality is, is that if we love our children, we will get our stuff in order to the glory of God. We must admit, brothers and sisters, that every one of us in this room has a sexual past, has a sexual identity, and has sexual desires that must be brought into submission to Christ and his kingdom. Whatever your sexual attraction, whatever your sexual inclination, how we act out our sexuality directly speaks to who we serve and who we worship. And this is why the issue of sexual morality is at the beginning of every list noted in the New Testament. To misuse our sexuality is to follow a false god. Each and every day, dear church, I personally must bring my sexuality into submission to God. Well, Hans, you're heterosexual, right? Yep. You love your wife. Yep. You and your wife have a good sex life. Yep. So you don't have to bring your, life, your sexual life into submission to God at all. 
I'm sorry to tell you, your pastor is a sinner. I am still a human man. If I were to follow my own sexual inclination outside of service to Christ and covenant loyalty to my God, then the use of my wife as an object for my own sexual satisfaction or my lust toward women with whom I am not in covenant, they would all make sense. It makes sense if you don't follow a covenant God to go sow your wild oats. Why would you not? It's a covenant issue. It's a covenant to my wife. It's a covenant to my God. And it's a way in which I manifest his glory and the love he has for me because he is covenantally faithful to me. Anything outside of God's view of sex, it doesn't reflect his covenant love. And so if we look at marriage and the intimacy it brings, we realize that its first and foremost use is to picture Christ's intimate love for his people. It was that way in the Old Testament and that way in the New. Look with me uh, at Ephesians chapter 5. Go to your New Testament. I'm almost done here. Ephesians chapter 5. And take a look at verse 25. You see, folks, sex and covenant loyalty are still intricately linked. To separate them is to lead ourselves toward destruction. Chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's that talking about, guys? Say it out loud. It's okay. Sex. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Our very salvation is pictured and illustrated through these ideas of sexual intimacy, covenant loyalty and marriage, and inheritance and paternity. Look at the genealogy of who Jesus was in Matthew chapter 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it goes on down through there. Everything we've talked about today, if it weren't in order, guys, if it weren't there, then Jesus would not fulfill the prophecies of who his great, 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 great grandfather was. And likewise, if Jesus were not the son of the most high God and king, he would not have the ability to give us internal, eternal life or an inheritance of the earth. Jesus is the son of the Father God and the son of the king of God's people, David. He's the grandson of David, great, 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 great grandson of David. And it's only because he is in this position that he can promise us that we will inherit the kingdom, as we heard in Julie's reading of Matthew 5. Look again at some of these Sermon on the Mount verses that we skip right past and read them through the eyes of paternity and lineage and covenant loyalty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How we act, how we live our life, how we serve in covenant loyalty, 
It directly reflects who our Father is. It directly reflects our paternity and who, whose kingdom we are part of. In the consummation of the intimacy in covenant union between Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride, you and I have been produced as offspring that war against the kingdom of darkness. This is what Romans 8 says to us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we do not participate with Christ, we are not his children, and therefore these promises of inheritance, they don't land. An early church father was quoted as saying, no one can have God as father without the church as mother. And this is the reality. If we are people of covenant promise and covenant faithfulness, then we will be children of God. We will act in a way that glorifies God. And the sexual ethic of God's people, even today in 2019, especially today in 2019, is a direct reflection of the relational ethic of God himself. Covenant loyalty and commitment between one God and one people, one Christ and one church, one husband and one wife. You see how it all matches together? As we humbly bring our own sexuality into submission to Christ and humbly and compassionately speak to others and walk with others to get them to do the same, in doing so, we bring glory to God and we witness of his love. Today, as we take communion, we can rejoice in the covenant faithfulness and the intimacy that God gives to us as his bride. We are collectively his bride. And Revelation speaks of the day that he will come back as the consummation, the wedding feast in which the intimacy of God with his people will be fully known. When we go to the communion table and we look forward to that coming, we celebrate everything we've talked about today. And so the reality is, is that we need to take time today to apply this to our own lives. If you're a person like me, who has used our sexuality in a way that is not submitted to him in the past. Today, we must purpose to step into covenant faithfulness to him by using our sexuality to show his glory. We must confess and take time at the table to commit our lives to his sexual ethic because we are his children who will inherit his kingdom. If you're a person who has been harmed in the area of sexuality, you've been raped or molested or anything else, along those lines. Today is the day you can go to the table and you can lay the shame that you carry with that down. And you can say, I know you are, you are one who fights on behalf of the oppressed and the harmed. I know you are one who has given me a new name and a new understanding of who I am. And you can take time at the table to take on that identity of his beautiful son or daughter who is cleansed and pure in his name and walk out of here leaving that shame behind. And if you are one who is struggling in the area of sexual immorality right now of any kind, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, maybe you struggle with your gender identity, maybe you are questioning gender and sexuality altogether, I want you to know that we as a body love you. We are not ashamed of you. We are not angry with you. We want to walk with you through the process of bringing your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And it is a fight, but we want to fight with you. And we want to love you in the midst of that fight. And so I ask of you that if you're one of those people, come and talk with me. Again, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, whatever it is you're struggling with, come and talk with us. Because all of us need to bring our sexuality under obedience to Jesus Christ. 
And if you're a person here today who's sitting here and you're thinking, wow, these Christians are pretty serious. This was kind of half boring, half serious. I don't know if I want to come back. Come back again and continue to go through the Word of God with us because the Word of God speaks into every area of our life and it gives us wisdom in every area of our life. What an amazing God that He even will go into the deepest, darkest places of our heart and say, I want to reign. I want to rule and I want to show my compassion and wisdom to you. And so let's give all of that over to him as we go to his table of communion and as we um, spend time with him and with his people. If you don't know Jesus, I would love to talk with you in the back about what it is to even follow Jesus, to even start this process. And I hope that today all of us walk out of here with some clarity around the idea that our sexuality is directly tied to the covenant relationship we have with God. Let's show that with every area of our lives, including our sexuality. Amen? Amen. Amen.